Open your copy of the scriptures to Ezekiel chapter 37. It's on page um, 857 if you're using the Pew Bible. (coughs) Ezekiel's prophecy prompted at least two uh, well-known spirituals from the slaves, the African slaves in America. Early on we read about Ezekiel's wheel. We saw the wheel... Ezekiel saw the wheel way up in the middle of the air, the wheel in the middle of the wheel. That was a very popular uh, spiritual. And then today we're going to hear the inspiration for dim bones, dim bones, dim dry bones. But now, seriously, hear the word of the Lord. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Come, breath, from the four winds, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. And he said to them, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to God. Now, let's pray together before we begin. Lord, I pray that you would use my words to expound your word and by the work of your spirit bring life to those who hear. And as we pray in Christ's name, amen, amen. 
It's hard to imagine the utter despair of those uh, defeated Jewish exiles living in a refugee camp on the outskirts of Babylon to whom Ezekiel was called to preach. When he had first begun to address them, uh, many had maintained a naive optimism about their future. Uh, Sure, their capital city of Jerusalem had been attacked and the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had taken away many of the elite of society as prisoners back to his native land. But still, uh, the city was still there. And so was the sacred temple of God. And the Lord their God, Yahweh, who had delivered them to Egypt and had pledged his commitment to Israel as his people, surely he would not abandon them. Surely he would protect his temple. Surely he would defeat the Babylonians and bring his people back to their homeland. Perhaps in a year, maybe two, they'd be returning and their lives would be restored. This is what the false prophets were telling the people and many of them believed them. Peace, peace, they declared. All will be well. Don't worry. But it was Ezekiel's job to proclaim to them that all would not be well. These false prophets uh, preached peace because they did not know what they were talking about. Or better, they did not know who they were talking about. The God they talked about was a kind of patron deity, a grandfatherly kind of God who, who wasn't at all concerned about their behavior. No, he was just wanted the Israelites to be warm and well fed. The false prophets knew nothing about his awesome holiness, which can be revealed like a consuming fire. But Ezekiel did. He had seen the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when he had seen it, he fell face down as though dead, overwhelmed. Ezekiel knew a righteous God who was not to be trifled with. And having been commissioned to preach by this holy God for the first five years of his ministry, Ezekiel had used sometimes bizarre methods to proclaim a message of judgment upon a sinful Israel. Contrary to what many believe, they hadn't been conquered by the Babylonians because the Lord their God was weak or indifferent. They had been conquered because the Lord had set his face against them. They had violated the covenant he had made with him. They'd gone after other gods like adulterers going after other lovers. And he had finally said, enough. Nebuchadnezzar had been his instrument of judgment upon his people. And the people had to recognize this truth. The truth of who God was. A righteous and holy God. And the truth of who they were in his sight. A sinful people who deserved nothing but his wrath. Things were not going to get better, at least not any time soon. In fact, they were going to get worse, much worse. Nebuchadnezzar would return to Jerusalem and he would besiege it. And the suffering of their fellow countrymen would be horrific. And more than that, the temple of God, in which they took so much national pride, the temple of their God would be burned to the ground. Now, this was not a popular message, as you can well imagine. Just think of someone in this country declaring uh, the coming victory of Al-Qaeda and the imminent destruction of the U.S. Capitol building because we are a sinful nation. But in Israel's case, at least what Ezekiel proclaimed was certainly true. And only when the people acknowledged this truth would they be in a position to receive God's grace. Well, in 587 B.C., it finally happened, just as Ezekiel said it would. 
Nebuchadnezzar came, besieged the city, raised it to the ground and destroyed the temple of God. And there in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 21, the news arrives to the exiles in Babylon. There we read, in the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day, a man who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, the city has fallen. Can you imagine how that made these people feel? Jerusalem was their home. And the temple of God there was the source and symbol of their hope. It it symbolized the very presence of God in their midst. But now it was gone. It was destroyed. It had been wiped off the map. The unimaginable had happened. The source of their national pride, the the, the strength, the the fortress of of Israel had, had been taken from them. They were lost. They were suddenly disconnected from their homeland and from their God. The image that comes to me is, is, uh, is of an astronaut. One of those spacewalks. He's tethered to the space shuttle. But suddenly, his, his tether gets disconnected from the ship. He's left drifting in the dark emptiness of space. Well, he thinks, oh well, someone on the shuttle, they'll, they'll come get me, surely. But then he looks back. And he sees the shuttle get hit by a meteor and it it blows up. And he says, it's all over. He's lost. There's no one, no one to come to his rescue. You see, that's how these Israelites must have felt. It's a feeling that's captured well in the words of the psalmist in Psalm 83, 88. Excuse me. My soul is full of trouble and my life draws near the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like a man without strength. I am set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. The city has fallen. And what they thought was impossible had now taken place. And we read in the verse that follows that Ezekiel's mouth was opened. And what did he say? I told you so. No, Ezekiel, he's a pastor at heart with a desire for the ultimate well-being of his flock. And it's only now when all their false hopes are dashed and the people have come to a point of despair in themselves that the Lord gives Ezekiel a new message. Ezekiel, the prophet of doom and judgment, suddenly becomes a prophet of hope. And that message of hope dominates the rest of the book. Now, we've heard something of that message the last two weeks, haven't we? In chapter 34, the Lord castigates the corrupt kings of Israel, their shepherds who had fleeced the sheep for their own benefit. And the Lord promises that he himself would be their shepherd to search for the lost and bring back those who had been scattered. He would put his his shepherd David on the throne. And then last week in chapter 36, we have the the amazing promise that the Lord would cleanse his people from their sins and transform them from the inside, giving them a new heart, a new spirit. In fact, the Lord promises that he would put his spirit within them and move them to follow his decrees and keep his laws. And now this morning in our passage, one of the most well known of the whole book, the Lord once again gives the prophet a strange vision. A vision that reinforces in dramatic fashion this prophetic hope for an utterly helpless and hopeless people. So turn back with me there to uh, Ezekiel chapter 37. Let's go with the prophet to this valley 
of dry bones. Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. Now, the last time the hand of the Lord had been upon Ezekiel and had taken him to a valley for this visionary experience, he had seen the glory of the Lord. This time the vision is not of the Lord's glory, but a vision of Israel's defeat and despair. The Lord set Ezekiel in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones. Now, to appreciate the impact of this vision on Ezekiel, we somehow have to get out of our heads that cute little spiritual song that we learned as kids, which Ed has already referred to, dem bones, dem bones, dem dry bones. There was nothing cute about what Ezekiel saw. In fact, I think of what it must have been like for uh, my wife Susan's childhood neighbor, Ray Newcomer, who died just a couple of months ago. Uh, Ray was among the U.S. troops who liberated a German concentration camp at the end of World War II. It was a traumatic sight of such horror that it, it stuck with him the whole of his life. And this is what it must have been like for Ezekiel. You see, these bones were a vivid manifestation of human death and decay. But there's more to this vision than that. It says that they weren't just a few bones scattered here and there. No, there, was a, there were a great many bones on the floor of the valley. And later, when they're reassembled, they formed a vast army. Verse 10. And the image of an army is reinforced by the description of them. Verse 9. As these slain. The image is that of a great army of men who had gathered for a battle in the valley and there they had been massacred. And their bodies were, were just left where they lay, not given a proper burial, which was a, an ultimate disgrace. I mean, even Osama bin Laden was given a proper burial. And more than that, these bones were very dry, we read. These, these dead human bodies were, were subjected to the ravages of vultures and other vermin, devouring their decaying flesh, and all that were left were these bones bleached by the sun. And in the law of God, exposure to dead bodies rendered a person unclean and disqualified from the worship of God. And yet here Ezekiel tells us that the Lord led me back and forth among them. He wanted the prophet to experience just how, how dreadful this, 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 this vision was. This was ugly. It was repulsive. It was disgusting. And this is what Israel looked like in the eyes of the Lord. For in verse 11, the Lord tells Ezekiel, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. This vision of a valley full of dry bones is a picture of the nation of Israel under the covenant curse of God. In fact, this is just what the Lord had said would happen to Israel if they were unfaithful to his covenant with them. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 15, Moses had declared to the people, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you. Verse 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will come at them from one direction, but flee from them in seven. You will become a thing of horror to all the kingdoms on earth. Your carcasses will be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. 
This is just what has happened to Israel. They had sinned against the Lord. They were under God's curse. This once glorious nation was now nothing but a valley of dry bones in God's sight. And that's just how they felt. Look at verse 11. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. They'd become humbled by their sin. They were horrified by God's judgment upon them. They had no place to go. No one to turn to. All was darkness and despair like dry bones. These people had no future. It was a hopeless situation. And then in verse 3, the Lord speaks to Ezekiel. Son of man, can these bones live? It's an odd question to ask, because in one sense, the answer is so obvious. Of course, these dry bones can't live. I mean, they're the quintessence of death itself. But then think again, who's asking the question? It's the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. He's the God who created Adam from the dust of the earth and breathed life into him. And if you look at it that way, then the answer is also obvious. But in the other direction, of course these dry bones can live. God can give life to anything. So which is it? Son of man, can these bones live? Ezekiel gives exactly the right answer. I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. And by that, I don't think Ezekiel was saying that only God knows whether these bones can live. Instead, Ezekiel is saying that only God knows whether these bones will live. He's saying, Lord, whether they come to life or not, it's all up to you. It's your call. Only you can make that decision. It is for you to determine according to your will. And by the way, I think this way of understanding Ezekiel's words, you know, sheds important light on another instance of the word know earlier in the Bible. The Lord had prohibited Adam and Eve from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Not so that they wouldn't know what good and evil were, but so that they wouldn't take it upon themselves to determine what was good and what was evil according to their own will. You see, that prerogative belonged to God and to God alone. That's why their decision to eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil was the decision to put themselves in the place of God. Here, Ezekiel refuses to do that. He asserts the sovereignty of God and the absolute right of God to exercise that sovereignty as he wills. The Lord rules. And Ezekiel is implicitly putting himself under that rule, humbly submitting to God's rule. For Israel had forfeited all rights to God's goodness. They had put themselves under God's curse. They deserved all that they had received. Son of man, can these bones live? O oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know. And only a miracle from God could make any difference. And a miracle is just what the Lord promises. Look at verse 12. This is what the sovereign Lord says. O oh, my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. 
and I will settle you in your own land. Now here the, the metaphor's changed a bit, but the meaning is the same. Instead of just dry bones left on a battlefield, the people are likened to, to corpses lying in tombs. But the Lord promises new life for his people, a restoration of Israel as a people. A restoration every bit as miraculous as dead people rising from the grave. So how will this happen? I mean, the Lord could simply do it as an act of his own will. I mean, he could speak it and it would all come to be. But that's not what happens here. The Lord acts through means. The prophet Ezekiel becomes his instrument by which he brings about this mighty act of revival. Here the prophet is called to engage two agents in this mighty work of God. The word of God and the spirit of God. First in verse four, then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now, I once heard of a uh, seminary professor of preaching. Uh, talk about the fact that he always took his students on a field trip during the course of uh, his homiletical training, a field trip to a local cemetery. He would have them all stand around one of the graves and he would ask one of the students to preach to the buried corpse in the grave. Now, the students would all look at him like he was crazy. He'd say it again. And then he said, when this happens, this, the student never knows what to say. So eventually he starts preaching himself. And after a while, they get the point. It doesn't make any sense at all. But this is exactly what the Lord commands Ezekiel to do. The Lord points poor Ezekiel to these dry bones and he says, preach to them. Preach to them. Now, it's ludicrous to think that these bones could hear anything. I mean, the, though ears may have bones, bones don't have ears. Now, preaching to people who are asleep is bad enough. I know what that's like. <laughs> I can always just raise my voice a little and sometimes startle them. But, but preaching to people who are dead. What's the point? Just this. Is Ezekiel needed to learn what every creature, Christian preacher must learn and what every Christian must learn. See, there is no situation so despairing, so hopeless, so lifeless. That the Lord himself cannot speak life into it. It is the word of God that we're to proclaim after all. And when God said, let there be light, there was light. And it was the word of God that, that called the stars into being. And Jesus simply said, Lazarus, come out. And that dead man came walking out of the tomb. See, the Word of God has power because it is the Word of God. It's more power than we can ever know. The Lord says through the prophet Isaiah, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my Word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. That's why the Lord says to Ezekiel, prophesy to the bones. There is a power inherent in the word of God. And it may seem foolish and futile to proclaim God's word to people who are so incapable of hearing it. 
because they are dead. They are dead in their trespasses and sins, as Paul describes unbelievers in Ephesians chapter 2. But you see, God uses His Word to bring life. The Gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And that's the way it's always been. Whenever there's been a revival among God's people, there's always been a powerful preaching and teaching of God's Word. The Word of God has power. Power beyond our ability to to persuade and convince. Just a few weeks ago, I heard the testimony of a friend of mine from grade school. We used to sit together in fifth grade. He'd grown up to be a real partier, and we lost track of each other. I hadn't heard from him in years and years. But then I heard something had happened to this guy. By his own admission, as we talked, he talked about himself as being sexually promiscuous. He'd been divorced as a result, but he didn't change. He was dead in his trespasses and sins, nothing but dry bones. Until about six years ago. Someone he cared about was diagnosed with cancer, and my friend started reading the Bible. He began to devour the Bible. And within three months, he was down on his knees asking Jesus Christ to be his Savior and his Lord. His life was dramatically changed. And interestingly, since he's written a historical novel about the early days of the church after the resurrection of Jesus, which he's now hoping to produce as a movie, a kind of sequel to the passion of the Christ. God's word has power. I mean, look around at churches today. Where is their real spiritual life? Where is their Christian growth? It's in the places where God's word is preached and it's taught. You see, here, Ezekiel was called to proclaim the promise of the word of God. Prophesy to these bones. Say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. What a message. What a message that people dead in their trespasses and sins need to hear. That through the saving work of Jesus Christ, they can come to life. And we read in verse 7, So I prophesied as I was commanded. And when he does, does, something happens. In this vision, As I was prophesying, we read, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them. Something happened. But then, something didn't happen. But there was no breath in them. There was no breath in them. Here's the catch, you see. The Word of God, as powerful as it is, is not sufficient in itself To bring life. I think of Ezekiel himself. I mean, he'd been a prophet for many years through all sorts of means. He'd faithfully proclaimed God's word to these people with only a minimal response. The Lord himself spoke of that response back in chapter 33, verse 31. My people come to you, the Lord says to Ezekiel, as they usually do and sit before you to listen to your words. But they do not put them into practice. With their mouths, they express devotion. Oh, fine sermon, preacher. But their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them, you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, 
but do not put them into practice. The word of God was proclaimed, but it fell on deaf ears. And so it can be in our day. Faithful preaching of the word can often have a, a, a positive effect. It can sometimes improve morals. It can have a significant social impact, doing some good, but without a real transforming effect upon the hearts of the hearers. It may turn bones into corpses. And they may look better on the outside, but on the inside, they're still dead. And there are churches that do preach and teach the Bible. They work hard to maintain their biblical, theological orthodoxy, but there's no life in them. It becomes a dead orthodoxy. You see, the word of God in itself isn't enough. Something else is needed. And so the Lord says to Ezekiel in verse 9, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. Now, there's ambiguity in the Hebrew that's uh, obscured in our English translations. The same Hebrew word, ruach, which occurs ten times in our passage, can have a variety of meanings depending on the context. You may notice this in notes at the bottom of your Bible text. In the first and last verses, it clearly means spirit, especially God's spirit. In verse 9, it means wind. In verses 5, 6, 8, and 10, it means breath in a kind of literal, straightforward sense. But it's two occurrences here in verse 9 are ambiguous. Prophesy to the breath. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. Here, surely, it refers to the breath of life. The breath of life that comes through the Spirit of God who gives life. And here the Lord is affirming that the proclamation of the Word of God is useless without an accompanying life-giving power of the Spirit of God. Word and Spirit, they must go together. They can't be separated. The Word of God must be written on our hearts. And it's the Spirit who makes that Word a living Word. It's the Spirit who uses the Word of God to convict us of our sin. It's the Spirit who uses the Word of God to confirm the truth of the Word of God in our hearts. And it's able to transform us. So how can we lay hold of the Spirit's power? Well, the answer is implicit in what the Lord told Ezekiel to do. Prophesy to the breath. That is, speak to the Spirit who alone can give life. Which is another way of saying, we must pray. We must not only proclaim the promise of the Word of God, we must also pray for the power of the Spirit of God. Proclamation and prayer. Prayer and proclamation. These are the two means of spiritual revival. Engaging the two agents of spiritual revival, the Word and the Spirit. And they are the means given by God to Ezekiel. And they are the means given by God to us as well. They have been the means God has used throughout Christian history. As all great times of revival have been accompanied by the preaching and teaching of the Word of God and a renewed passion to pray. So much so that it's hard to know whether prayer is the means of revival or, or the result of revival. God's Word is proclaimed, and by prayer, God's Spirit goes forth in power, and dry bones are brought to life to the glory of God. It's pretty basic, really, isn't it? 
Now, this may take various forms, and the forms of the past may not be the right forms for our cultural setting. Tent meetings with sawdust floors, with preaching prefaced by gospel singers, may not be the right thing for modern Americans, I don't know. But whatever form we use, we dare not abandon these two essential agents of spiritual renewal. We must proclaim the promise of the Word of God. We must pray for the power of the Spirit of God. These are God's means of bringing life to dry bones. And as we think of our own church and the activities we engage in, we dare not neglect these two essentials in all our programs and our ministries. They must be soaked in God's truth through his word and God's power through his spirit, which we lay hold of as we pray. Now, that doesn't mean that every time we get together, all we do is open our Bibles and expound it or that we bow our heads in prayer. No, there, there are different ways that these can be worked out in our life together. But whatever we do has to be informed by God's Word and inspired by God's Spirit. And if not, we're just another social club. Perhaps helping each other cope with the stresses of life, but not really transforming people from the inside by the power of God. We must proclaim the promise of the Word of God and we must pray for the power of the Spirit of God. Again, this is what has marked God's people through the ages. And whatever new trends and new approaches to ministry may come out in the years ahead, we dare not neglect these essentials. But then again, we mustn't think that if we just do these things, then spiritual revival will automatically happen. As if it's some foolproof uh, technique, like some diet plan that guarantees you will lose 10 pounds in a month if you just stick to the program. Now, there is no simple recipe for revival or real church growth. Remember the Lord's question to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? And the only right response, oh, sovereign Lord, you alone know. You see, this new life, this restoration, this resurrection is not within our power to bring about. Only God can do it. Now, we may embalm dead bodies like funeral directors and dress them up so they look nice. And we may even be able to gather a bunch of them into one place. But we can't give them life. Only God can do that. And he maintains his own prerogative to move and to act as he sees fit. Didn't Jesus say that the spirit is like like the wind that blows wherever it pleases? It's not in our control. We are to do what God calls us to do. We're to proclaim his word. We're to pray for His spirit to work. But the Lord alone knows when he will act in his merciful power. And he invites us. He invites us to participate with him in his saving work, reviving dry bones. But we can never congratulate ourselves when it happens. God alone can bring life and he alone must get the glory for it. As he reminds us, when spiritual awakening happens, verse 14, then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Now, before we close this morning, I'd like to move from this general theme of spiritual revival to the more specific theme of how we're to understand this passage in its historical context and in the context of the saving work of God in the Bible. Now, 
you notice that the metaphorical language that Ezekiel uses changes in the course of this passage. In the first part, the prophet is uh, given a vision of dry bones scattered in a valley. And then in verses 10 to 14, the image changes to corpses lying in a grave. But you see, they're describing the same event. Ezekiel here is not talking about the general resurrection of the dead at the end of history. He's talking about the restoration of Israel to her land within history. It's a promise that God will restore his people in a great and gracious way. Uh, This people who have endured the discipline of exile will be forgiven, cleansed and transformed and will return to their land, which itself will be transformed into a place of great blessing. That's what Ezekiel is talking about. Now, to understand this passage rightly, it seems to me, you have to look backward and you have to look forward in the biblical story. First, the story of Israel here has to be connected to the story of Adam. I mean, you can't help here but hear an echo of the creation of Adam and the way that these bones come back to life. In the first stage, the bones are made into bodies. And then in the second stage, God breathes life into these bodies so that they come alive. And doesn't that sound like Genesis chapter 2, verse 7? When the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And there's another biblical reference here that again connects our passage with Adam. In the previous chapter... Chapter 36, referring to Israel's return to the land and the abundance of the fruit of its trees, we're told that those who see it will say, this land that was laid waste has become like the Garden of Eden. And being sent into exile, it's as if Israel had been cast from the Garden of Eden. And this is the promise of return with Israel taking the role of a, of a new Adam. As someone had put it, God's renewal of Israel was like a a rerun of creation. And so here in our passage in Ezekiel, God is dealing with the problem of the sin of Adam, which has affected all humanity by working with one nation, Israel, through whom he will one day bring blessing to all nations. That's the promise given to Abraham. So that's looking backward in the Bible. But I think we must also look forward. For we as Christians, we read the Bible as Christians. And we can't help reading these words of Ezekiel about the opening of graves and without thinking of the resurrection of Jesus. For opening a grave is exactly what God has done in real history. And there's an interesting connection to this prophecy of Ezekiel when when the risen Jesus met with his disciples in the locked room on that first Easter evening and he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And having stood at his uh, on his feet after lying in a corpse as a uh, in the grave, Jesus assumes the role of God himself in, in giving the spirit to his followers And the eyes of the disciples were suddenly opened. They began to realize the incredible meaning of what was happening before them. This Jesus of Nazareth, he was the son of Abraham. He was the son of David. He was the one who embodied all that Israel was meant to be. He was the true king of Israel, the true servant of the Lord, the true Israelite who lived before his father as a faithful and obedient son. He was the Messiah. 
And in the resurrection of the Messiah, God had done in Jesus what they were hoping God would do for Israel. And Jesus Himself, in taking our sin upon Himself, He relived the horrible history of Israel. He took the covenant curse upon Himself. And in His death, He was cast from God's presence out of the garden into exile. But Jesus conquered sin and death. And in His resurrection, He embodied the the resurrection of Israel and of humanity itself. And He entered into the new creation of a new Eden. And what did He say to that one man who was crucified with Him today, this day, you will be with Me in paradise. You see, Jesus, He's the first fruits of that glorious future. And He's gone to prepare a place for us and all who trust in Him as Messiah and as Lord will follow in His steps and one day we will enter that resurrection glory and enjoy life in a new heaven and a new earth as a new paradise with all its abundant blessing. And through Jesus Christ, Israel's promised Messiah, God's purpose to bring blessing to all nations has begun. And that's why Jesus commissioned His disciples to go. To go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Adam, Israel, Jesus Christ. You see, that's the progression of God's saving history that we are now a part of as we're joined to Christ by faith. And you see, this is why this prophecy of Ezekiel that is addressed to the Israelites suffering the despair and hopelessness of exile in Babylon over 2,500 years ago. This is why this passage has relevance for us today in Christ. We now participate in this promise. And this passage from the word of God declares that God can and God will bring hope in what appears to be the most hopeless situation. You see, we follow a crucified Messiah. One who was laid in a tomb. But who on the third day was raised to new life. So whatever situation you're in, think about that. God can bring new life. And now we have an even greater assurance of the truth of this promise that's given here in Ezekiel 37. Because that hope has already begun to be realized. In the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, as Paul writes, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. You see, ours is a hope that is now grounded in history. And on the basis of that hope, we ought never to despair again. Those dry bones shall live. Let's pray. Lord, the message of Ezekiel comes to us so very clearly that your grace, your grace poured out in our lives comes only through truth. Only as we recognize the truth of who you are, the truth of who we are in your sight. Only as we recognize 
that apart from your saving work, we are as dead and as hopeless as those dry bones. But Lord, as we see the truth, as you, by your spirit, allow us to see the truth, you pour out your grace. You promise new life. You give us hope for a future, a glorious future. And so, Lord, as we travel through this life and we experience the uh, troubles and hardships and apparently hopeless situations, Lord, help us to remember that those dry bones shall live. Those dry bones have come alive in your Son, Jesus Christ. We're now united to Him by faith. And we shall live with Him. Lord, stir up within us that great hope as we come before you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our closing song proclaims this wonderful truth that salvation belongs to our God. Let's stand together as we sing.